This is a really interesting one. This is number 424. I, um, Swami Kriyananda, Walter, he calls himself, I, Walter, asked Reverend Smith during my first year as a disciple, is the master equally conscious of everything? It's just, wouldn't it be fun to ask that question? The concept of being constantly in cosmic consciousness, even while acting in a physical body, the state master called Nirbhakalpa Samadhi, was perhaps, not surprisingly, quite beyond my comprehension. <clears throat> Reverend Smith, to whom I had addressed this question, Reverend Smith was just one of, master's, one of Swamiji's fellow disciples, wanted others to think his explanations came from his own personal knowledge. Swami just throws that in. Swami's being extremely <clears throat> accurate about where this information comes from, which is always good. Anyway, Reverend Smith wanted others to think his explanations came from his own personal knowledge. Nevertheless, based on what he said, and matching it against what I heard later from the Master himself on this subject, I think the following is a fairly exact explanation of the Master's teachings on the subject. <clears throat> so he begins to quote. We're just looking. Can't quite tell whether he puts it in blue or not, which means it's Master's words. In cosmic consciousness, you are inwardly conscious of everything. Your human mind, however, must be aware of things specifically. When you yourself concentrate on one flower out of several, then although you are aware of that one flower especially, you are also aware that there are others. It's such an interesting way to put it, isn't it? That you can know many things at the same time but only be focused on one. You see those others there, but to your present awareness they are peripheral. So we can sort of sit with that for a minute, you know. Just like even as we're in this room talking... We know that El Camino is out there. We know that there's things going on out there, that people are having dinner, that our car is sitting there, that we hope no one is breaking into it. All of those things are like somehow part of our awareness, but I hope you're not thinking about them, <laughs> except until now about whether our cars are being broken into. Okay. So then he goes on. The case is similar in the case of a master. He is aware of everything everywhere, but at the same time, whatever calls for the specific human attention, since it is in his direct line of vision, he addresses particularly. His human mind functions in a human way, period. Inwardly, however, his inner consciousness embraces all existence. Well, this is where we're dealing with a little more than whether our car is being broken into. <laughs> what does that mean? His inner consciousness embraces all existence. That would be past, present, future, geographic everywhere. Begins to feel a little different than us at that point. Now Swami's writing without quotation marks. Many were the opportunities, Swamiji said. I had to observe this dichotomy of awareness in Paramhansa Yogananda. He would know things, yet not always seem at first to be aware of them. I said to him once, Master, please help I named one of the monks, Swami says. It wasn't Jean, Jean Haupt, to whom I've referred earlier. Master, please help this monk. He seems to be going through a hard time. The monk was distant from us at the time. So Swami's just reporting as the head of the monks. You know, so-and-so is having a hard time. Uh-oh, said the master. Instantly, he'd concentrated on this person and had known what, was going, uh, what he was going through. So, Master may have not been thinking about it, but when Swami mentions his name, then all of a sudden, Master puts his mind there. As soon as he puts his mind there, he has that unity of consciousness with his disciples, and he can feel precisely what that monk is going through. But he apparently wasn't thinking about it until Swami mentioned it. And then there's another interesting addition here. That monk soon afterward left the monastery. The master had been inwardly aware of the situation and now responded to it because I had drawn it to his human attention. The monk himself, however, had not saw 
sought to draw that attention from the master. He had lost his attunement and had made no mental appeal for assistance. That's, I mean, that is a really interesting part of it because if the monk had been calling to master, that also would have drawn his attention to it, which is an interesting point just in terms of attunement, the guru's response. I remember um, there was this man in the community that Swamiji, Swamiji was well impressed with him. He was a very energetic man. He had lots of leadership ability. You know, Swamiji was really hoping that he would uh, take to our path because he, it, it looked like he could be very good as a disciple. But he had too many worldly qualities, which Swami had also seen, but he was hoping to win him through it. But at a certain point, the man decided that he was going to leave and do something else. And as he was walking out, Swami didn't give him much advice because he didn't ask for much advice. I, happened, I was present for the interview. You know, Swami gave him some suggestions, but the man was set, so he wasn't going to argue. And he was walking out. He turned to Swami and he said, well, if Master doesn't want me to go, he can always stop me, meaning leaving the ashram. And after he walked out the door, Swami said, why would Master respond to a prayer like that? You know, make me do something if you want to. Because we don't, we have this picture that the gurus are trying to boss us around, that, that it's somehow like they're taking control and then exercising that control. But what we have to really appreciate is that they respond, they will give us, they will, they will participate in our lives exactly to the extent that we invite them to participate. And the idea that, that, we, that like just because we've taken discipleship or just because we meditate in the morning, that therefore, you know, we can just rely on it without, without ourselves attracting, drawing the, the energy of the masters. It doesn't, you have to understand, it's not a question of formal prayers. It's not a question of really anything. It's what we really want in our hearts. Because the master is not fooled by an appearance. You know, Swami refers to Reverend Smith wanted you to think that what he was telling you was coming from his own experience. You know, the Master's not fooled by our wanting it to look like we're really interested in uh, the Guru's input. He just feels the sincerity of, of what we're trying to do. And sincerity is different from effectiveness. And sincerity is different from discipline. Sincerity is different from everything. Sincerity is just who we long to be, and that's that's really what calls um, that's really what calls the Guru's grace to us is how how really deeply sincere that longing is. You know how how much we really wish not to live by our will, but to live by God's will. And even if we have bad habits and we're weak in what we do, or you know, inclinations that are not um, uplifting in themselves. A lot of times people are, are in a, uh, a, whirl, a whirlpool of wrong action, but, but within it the cry is still going up to the Master to help me. And, but, but once we lose interest in having the Guru's input, then we, we break the connection. And, and Master could still, you know, still enter into his consciousness and know where he was, but without an invitation, he couldn't interfere. Now, that, we don't want that to make us paranoid. I know sometimes people get really, really paranoid. That's why I'm trying to say, it's not a question of how we think it. It's a question of who we really are in ourselves. And so that's what we have to really cultivate, is just cultivate, what do I really want in my life? What is really important to me? And even if there's, as I say, a contradiction between our actual aspirations and our ability to express them, I, I have I've seen this in others and I've felt it in myself. It's like the energy flows through the chakras and we try to act in attunement with divine will, which would come from the, the spiritual eye. But, but all of the chakras have these vrittis, these whirlpools, and so we'll, we'll have an impulse. This, this is how it feels to me. One will have an impulse that you're going to do this, but sort of like on the way to doing this, one of those vrittis kind of 
gets the flow. And so we think we're going like this, and we're actually going like that. That's how I felt it in my life. I intend to do this, and then I end up doing that. Sometimes it's a question of literally just getting distracted from my goal. Sometimes it's, I know exactly how I'm going to say this, and I know the energy I'm going to put behind it, but it comes out like that instead. You know, and all of a sudden, you're not calm, and you're not centered, but you're slightly hysterical, even though you thought you were going to be calm and centered, but somehow along the way, your energy got hijacked. I mean, I've shared with you before that one of the ways I worked my way out of this was I started listening very carefully to the tone of my voice. And I started listening to the speed and the pitch of my voice. And whenever I heard a certain speed and pitch, it didn't matter what I thought I was doing. It was clear as to what I was doing, that my good intention had been hijacked by my anxiety. It isn't how we present ourselves, you know, at all. It's who we actually are. And so that's why you have to keep that relationship going all the time with God and Guru. You just have to constantly remember. Um, and, and, you know, the path for me, I often say, you know, I'm a disciple. I'm a disciple of a great master. You know, I'm part of Ananda. It's like, this is, this is my self-definition, and I don't want to lose it. Because if, we, if that relationship, you know, I'm Swami's child, he'll help me. I know he'll help me. If I constantly affirm that relationship, then everything else becomes secondary to that. It may have to be dealt with, it may interfere, it may confuse. But when you get down to the bottom line, there'll always be that radiating pulse. This is who I am. And, and that's the sincerity that saves us from he had lost his attunement and made no mental appeal for assistance. Because if you make the mental appeal for assistance, it will always come. Not necessarily in the way um, we want it to, <laughs> or in the time that we want it to. That was my sermon yesterday or Sunday. Okay, any questions or comments or thoughts about any of that? I, some of us have this idea of um, God being our Divine Mother and also Guru um, just hearing stories about Guru's love mm-hmm. and his concern for disciples. Um, and usually mothers, you know, they do keep a watch on the children. And, you know, even if they don't appeal to the mother, the mother kind of tries to um, be with them and kind of direct them and just how mothers are. So yes. how would we relate this to that? Like, you know... Um, you know, even if the child is not able to appeal mentally because of some doubt or delusion that he or she is going through, um, how would Guru and God, how would they view that as? Because that's a temporary thing, right? Yes, and it's superficial. I mean, a doubt or delusion that you're going through is a doubt or a delusion because it comes on top of the desire to be in tune and the desire to have faith. It's when... You know, that's, I mean, that's what a doubt is. A doubt is that I want to have this happen or I wish to be this way, but now I'm caught up in this. There's a, there's a subtle point, and I'm just going to see, oh, it, it comes slightly later, but it's, it, it, it's nothing to, and this is what I always try to, don't be afraid, don't be paranoid, because Divine Mother knows us better than we know ourselves. And so we can get caught up on the superficial level of what we think is happening, and we can take our thoughts really, really seriously. We can take our actions and our failures really, really seriously. But it's only when we actually really reject the very idea. And, you know, like that man says, well, if you don't want me to do it, you can stop me. And there's no humility anymore. There's no um, love anymore. There's no receptivity. That's when it stops. It doesn't stop because we've made such a mess of things. That's just sort of the given. But yet thinking of it as Divine Mother is always a wonderful way to think about it because the mother never gives up on her child. But 
if the child absolutely won't listen to the mother, it doesn't mean that the mother stops loving or waiting, but she can't interfere if you won't let her. Leave me alone. Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to have to earn, own, learn my own lessons. Or in the Bible, it's the story of the prodigal son who goes away and just squanders everything and finds himself nowhere. And then he remembers, but I'm the son of a rich man. I could just go back to my father. And then when he, as soon as he turns back in the, in the biblical parable, the father celebrates his return far from saying, what, you know, who are you to me? He says, my son was lost and now my son has returned. So the mother is always waiting, but she can't help us if we don't let her. And she can't help us if we don't want to. That's why we practice receptivity. We practice when it's easier, just building the habit. I know oh, this woman wrote to Swamiji once. She said she, she had to make a serious decision and it was an either-or decision. It wasn't a, I could do some of both. And she said, no matter how I pray, I just don't get an answer from Master. What should I do? Swami said, either choice. It doesn't make any difference. And in fact, it appeared as if it mattered. But he said, it doesn't make any difference. He said, he said Master is pleased that you're trying to live in the right way. And that, that's what kept the tie together, not, not the decision that she made. And that's something we just cultivate. Do I really want to live in the right way? Or do I really wish that I could just get for myself and not have to worry anymore about high ideals and principles. When my parents were elderly, and I, I, they lived in Los Angeles and I lived up in Northern California, and I just, I, I used to write them on a regular basis. It was sort of a way to give them energy, even though I was at a distance. And I also really wanted them to feel good about themselves and their children and their parenting. And I remember writing to this was really especially my father's influence, but I wrote to both of them. I said, you raised three children with such strong, you know, ethical standards that not one of us is capable of dropping so much as a gum wrapper on the sidewalk. <laughs> I said, we just couldn't do it. You know, we, we, we can't litter. And I don't mean that litter was such a big deal, but it was just like, you know, the principles are there. There's just no way. I really, I did once drop a gum wrapper and I had to just walk back and pick it up. I mean, I just, I couldn't do it because they've just put that in me so deeply. But that's what we're talking about. We're talking about where I am a disciple, I have a guru. And no matter how well or badly I'm doing it, it's just too deep in me for me to behave any other way. I'm just not going to be able to go out and try to steal from other people or compel other people to my will or you know, turn my back. I may have bad habits, but I, I will be conscious that I'm breaking my own rules by doing it. And that's, that's what keeps the tie there. Is that clear? Because it's a very important point. Yeah, all right. Anything else? So, then going on, Swami says, the master, this is, this is the parts I love, the master once told me, it is very difficult to play these two roles together, the human and the divine. Don't you love that? Master's confiding that, you know, being a guru is hard. <laughs> it's very difficult to play these two roles together, the human and the divine. I mean, what a statement. Isn't that interesting? In number 99 in this book, he also says about it. He explains how my position is kind of tricky, <laughs> Master says. So then, uh, this is not Master's words. Swami says, nowadays, when one simply reads about Master... It may be easier, in a sense, to accept this distinction between his inner consciousness and his outer awareness. For us, however, who had to grapple with it in person, it wasn't always so easy. So Ami said in another context, he said, in many ways, it's easier for you to be Master's disciples when he's not here because you just feel him as an overarching infinite spirit. He said, for us, he was... You know, he was God himself, and then he was having dinner in the next room. And Swami just said, yeah, it was just, you just didn't know where to put it in your consciousness. And I'm charmed by Master saying, it is a little difficult, even for me. So Swami says, for us, however, who had to grapple with it in person, it wasn't always so easy. I remember that I was once standing near the Master, pondering this mystery. Swami says, his body 
standing there, I was reminding myself earnestly, isn't who he really is. He is everywhere. He is even inside me as much as he is in that body. But isn't he also especially in that body? <laughs> Swami's asking. While I puzzled over this matter, the master came over to me and smiling quietly gave me an apple. <laughs> he said nothing else was said. <laughs> Swami's sort of in another context. He sort of says it was almost as if Master just patted him on the head and said, poor boy, you'll never figure it out. Because <laughs> he could feel him just, you can imagine, who are you? What are you doing? What is it like to be you? You're inside of me, you're over there. You're, you know, you're across the world, your disciples in India, you know all their thoughts. You could just see, you would just start spinning. Swami goes on. Once he said to me, those who are in tune, I know their every thought. And so this is what I was talking about, those who are in tune, those who open themselves. You know, if you want him to know, he'll know. If you don't want him to know, he'll close. I said to Swami about this very question, I said, does Master know every thought we think now, too? Swami's response was, of course. <laughs> Just like that. Of course he does, if you want him to. The folk at Swami, Swami himself said, when he began to realize that Master knew every thought he thought, you know, at first, it's a little embarrassing. But then he thought, I'm, I mean, that's what I want. That's what I'm here for. I want to be transformed. And that's where you have to think about mother. You know, mother knows us. Our mothers know us in ways, at least they think they do. But our divine mother really does know us. And, and it's so hard, it's so hard for us to understand that all of the nasty narrow-minded, mean characteristics that we project upon God are completely non-existent. They're only in us, and we literally can't imagine um, the kind of love that's being offered to us. And, but, but every once in a while, when we actually do allow ourselves to receive it, and just everything changes. So that, that's just sort of like, if you think that God doesn't love you, you're wrong. <laughs> If you think that God and Guru's affection and commitment and care for you is lessened because of our weaknesses, you're wrong. And I mean, and there's no, there's no middle ground on that. We're just wrong. So every single time any one of those thoughts arises, we're wrong. And, and it's the devil, literally. It's the satanic force within us trying to separate us from God and Guru. And it's not what they're saying and why, you know, the satanic force is saying and why it's true. It's just the satanic force. Go away. Nothing you can say. I mean, this was St. Anthony in the tomb after decades of meditation when the devil was trying to persuade him that God wasn't real and was threatening him in every which way that there was. And he was saying, no. Anthony was saying, no, I know what I know. I, I, I've been reading this really wonderful little book. It's called My Heart Will Triumph, and it's the first-hand account of one of the visionaries uh, in Medjugorje, in 19, starting in 1981 to these six, uh, at the time, children. Uh, five of them were in their teens, and one of them was 10 years old. And uh, the Virgin Mary started appearing to them. To, to this day, of those six, three of them are still having daily visitations from Mary. The woman who wrote this, Mariana, um, Mary comes to her once a month and then one extra time on her birthday. <laughs> and for the others, I think she comes once a year. She comes once a year to this other boy. And I, I think everybody still sees her somewhat, and three of them still see her every day. Now, let's see, what was I going to say? Oh, yes. And, but when this started in 1981, in, in Medjugorje, it was Yugoslavia, and it was under strong communist control. And, you know, it was forbidden to, to be openly religious in any way. And all of a sudden, the Virgin Mary is coming to this little hamlet here. And within a week, you know, thousands of people are coming to be there when these apparitions happen. So for years, she was persecuted by the authorities who 
would arrest her and take her out of school and come to her house. And they never um, physically tortured or hurt her. She said she felt that they just couldn't bring themselves to do it because they were still children. If they'd been adults, she felt they just would have been either killed or taken away immediately. But it went on for years and years and years. And they would just constantly try to tell her that it was a lie, that she'd just made it up. She was just trying to get attention. And she would just have to say, no. Because it wasn't a lie. It was really happening. And just over and over again, she just had to say no. And they, you know, they threatened her in ways that were very terrifying for her and made her family's life difficult and, you know, forced her out of school and, you know, just all kinds of things. But she couldn't say she just couldn't say that it wasn't true because it was true. And, you know, most of us are not tested like that. One has to wonder, if I was tested that hard, would I just be able... But, but for her, especially, it, you know, there she was. How can I say she's not there because she's there? And we're talking, we're having these experiences. So the answer is, yeah, it's true, just as simple as that. But I, I really, uh, it's, it's, a good, it's a good meditation to think, you know, how, how strong would I be? You know, it, and you would think, I mean, psychological um, attacks are also very, very difficult. It's not just physical pain that's so difficult. So anyway, once he said to me, those who are in tune, I know their every thought. The focus of his consciousness, as is obvious from that statement, was much broader than anything ordinary. I mean, how many disciples did Master have? Swamiji, there's the story of uh, two penniless boys in Brindavan that's told in Autobiography of a Yogi, where at the end of the day, this uh, Master takes somebody sort of behind the railroad station and initiates him into Kriya, I think. Swami asked Master once, he said, uh, have you ever seen him again? And and Master said, no, but inwardly he stays in touch. You know, so there was never another physical contact, but from that, he'd been a disciple the whole time, and Master said, inwardly he stays in touch, because those who are in tune, I know their every thought. Because the, the guiding force of the Master is so internal. Even if we were physically with him, the real guiding force is internal. And it's not just that, you know, in letters of light or in audible sound, it's just that, there, that you're, there's, an, you know, there's an influence that causes you to keep moving. And if you become sensitive, you begin to realize that you're being guided. I, I had that experience when, when we first started, I point here, meaning the city of Palo Alto. Night, we, we moved here on January 4th, just before Master's birthday, 1987. And in 1990, by that point, we had acquired the community and we had a dedication service for the community. And, you know, it was a, we worked really hard and, and uh, we were part of the, the, of the wave of energy that went out from Ananda Village to really begin to try to establish Ananda locales that were, that were substantial in places other than where Ananda Village is. So it was, um, it was an extension of Ananda, and we'd had a, a big ashram house in San Francisco for a number of years. We had a small ashram house in Sacramento. We actually had an east-west bookshop. We had an ashram here. But the, the idea of what has developed here, which is basically you know, a, a residential community, a school, a permanent temple, all of this, it, it was just beginning. And over those years, just because of this experience, those first three years, it was, it was just like a, a constant push of energy. And I, I, there, was, there was rarely any doubt about what to do. And it was partly because, you know, we were very well trained. And I'd been, I'd been at the Nanda village for 16 years. I'd been very close with Swamiji. In almost every situation, I had some idea of what he would what he had done or would have done. I mean I wasn't I wasn't acting from a blank slate. But when he came to dedicate the community and I guess it was August of nineteen ninety 
And he was sitting on the dais and I was standing at a microphone in front of him, slightly off to the side. And when I began to speak about how we'd gotten to that point where we had this community and we were dedicating it, I, I just became aware. I became so vividly aware that I didn't know how I could not have known it. That he'd been projecting every thought to me and that's why I always knew what to do. And that I had merely acted as his instrument. And I don't say that like, I had acted as his instrument. It was more like, of course what I was doing was just an extension of his consciousness. And because I was so sincere in my desire to do it, I didn't even actually know that that was happening. But where do ideas come from? Master said that ideas are universal and not individual. So we tune into what we're interested in tuning into. And, and my inclination to be in tune with Swamiji and to serve Master's work in the way he wanted it served had been so trained into me that when I found myself for the first time in my spiritual life physically separated from him and having to really act without, you know, seeing him every day, it was just who I was so deeply that I didn't know it. You understand? I mean, this is what I'm... And this is not, none of this is meant in any way to be boastful. That's, I'm not trying to put it that way. I'm just telling you, that's what it becomes for you. It just becomes who you are. I, uh, this is an extreme example of this, but it's interesting. Well, actually, I was in uh, Bangalore many years ago. And I was meeting a group of people who I didn't know very well. And so we were just, I was giving a small satsang. And they were just asking about, how did I ever end up at Ananda? So I told them, and I met Swami when I was 22, and when I was 24, I just gave up everything and moved to Ananda Village, and I never looked back. And they asked a natural question, what did your parents think? Which, of course, for, for my personal self, even though I have wonderful parents and a wonderful family, we're very independent. I left for college at 18, and I never lived with my parents again. It just, I just didn't. What did your parents think? And I said, it never occurred to me to ask them. (laughs) Which, of course, was in itself just, you know, caused a huge ripple, you know, through the room. (laughs) And I reminded them that I'm American and we have a different system, which was slightly, slightly comforting. But still, it was just such a horror. But the other part of it was, and I think I actually said this out loud, it wouldn't have mattered what they thought. Because... I knew what I was doing. I was just, I was just going to go do it. Now, what I saw in them was this uh, both admiration and horror that I would just not think that I had to get my parents' permission, that I could be so strong in my own point of view that I could just do it. And, and there was also, there was admiration there also. But to me it was like, of, of course, what's, what's so special about this? And, and this, this is a, a complicated tie-in, but it was so interesting to me because a few years later, would have been, no, it was probably around the same time, I, I went to Badrinath for the first time, which is this wonderful Babaji temple high in the Himalayas. And then I met this sadhu. I was with a whole group. We met this sadhu who lived in a tiny little kutir right up in the mountains, like another 1,500 or 2,000 feet up. It's a little tiny kutir. And he told us, by writing in Hindi on a board because he was in silence, um, how when the snows come, he puts his body inside this metal box and then he goes into a trance state and then in his astral body, he goes off to be with Babaji and the Himalayas through the whole winter. And he puts his body in the metal box so that no animals will eat it. And it, it, it seems, I mean, I have no... But it seemed to be commonly understood that whereas all the other sadhus came down because the snows were so deep, he didn't. He didn't come down. And, you know, everything is buried under snow. It's not like you can just keep living there. So anyway, it was all really fun. And later on, I was back in Delhi on that same trip, and Swami had heard about this man. He said, what did you think? I said, he said, is he, you know, is he what he purports to be? I had to say to Swami, Swami, it was my first time in Badrinath. I'm sitting in this kutir with this sadhu. I'm looking out at the Himalayas. Everything about it was so fabulous. 
I have no idea. I didn't. I have no idea what was coming from where. I don't. I don't know what was happening. It was. It was gorgeous, but I have no idea. But then I proposed. I said, "Well, you know, he was so casual about just putting his body in this box and then going off in his astral body and spending the winter with Babaji. He just talked about it as if it was so natural." And I presented that as maybe it was a hoax, therefore, because he presented it so natural. Swami's answer was priceless. Well, he said, at a certain point it is. It doesn't bear any comment, because that's just who you are and that's what you do. And I actually thought back to saying to those people in Bangalore, well, I didn't think to ask my parents and it wouldn't have mattered anyway. And I could tell from the way they were looking at me that that seemed really uh, extraordinary to them. Where to me it was just the most natural thing in the world. Of course, why would you ask your parents if you could go live with your guru? I mean, what does that have to do with anything? Of course you're going to go do it if you're going to go do it. But because it was natural to me. And so, all the way through, now, what was I talking about? Why was I talking about this? Um, it just is who you are. And, and that's the other thing about the spiritual life that we really have to understand. It just is who you are. And, and when, if it's really you... This, I was talking about Swamiji, how he projected all those thoughts to me. I didn't even think about it as odd. I mean, it was perfectly natural. I just hadn't cognized it because prior to that time, I had lived in physical proximity to him. So the fact that he was guiding me was more self-evident, is what I would say. But when I was suddenly, not that I wasn't in touch with him, because I always was. He would come and visit, we would talk. But nonetheless, there was just a flow of energy. We, were, we, just had to, we just had to figure out what to do. He wasn't doing it. I was, I was doing it. We were doing it. Whereas before, he was always involved externally. But that's, that's what we're working with. And that just comes from just wanting that. That's all. It just comes when you really sincerely want to live in attunement with a higher reality than my own ideas. But it won't come to you, or it comes to very few in flashes of light and actual instructions. It comes out of a sincere desire to serve and to do the right thing. Just the same way my, somehow my father taught me not to litter <laughs> or to lie. I'm just, I'm just really, really, I can't. I just can't. I don't know how. I, I was, it was just drained out of me from a very young age. Not that I was ever inclined. But you know, it was just like, you just don't lie. It's just not part of life. And I, that was, I believe I was born with that value, but my goodness, it was reinforced in my family, especially from my dad. You just don't do it. My dad was a great help. I was very, very grateful. My father, this is my favorite, my favorite daddy story. When I was, this is totally off the subject. When I was 16, um, in the town where I lived, which was then, where would I have been then? I was still in El Paso, Texas, right. So it must have been when I was 15, because that's when we left. No, maybe it, was, maybe it was California. No, it was California, actually. It was, I was 16, and it was California. Um, the local department store hired teenagers to be clerks, but not just to be clerks. We were young careerists. It was just some, I don't know, it was some PR thing with the... And they would take one student from every high school, or maybe two from every high school, and they gave us little special uniforms. All we did was just work in the store. But, you know, people who were interested in a retail career or something like that. Because I can always talk, I just talked myself into it. You know, I just, I dazzled them with words. And so I ended up with the job. It was just, it was just a nice job. It was a summer job or a winter job, whatever it was. Um, they put me first as a plum. They put me in the, in the junior fashion department where all the high school kids bought their clothes, not realizing that you really couldn't have put me anywhere worse, where the merchandise was cheesy and the uh, interest in it was manufactured by advertising and it was super... I was just horrid. I was absolutely horrid there. So during that period of time... My father happened to meet the store manager in some Chamber of Commerce event or something like that. And she, who was a skilled manager, said to my dad, I believe your daughter is too intelligent for retail work. <laughs> and my father knew exactly what she was actually saying. She's just insufferable 
arrogant little twit, is what she actually is, <laughs> which was the truth <laughs> of the situation. Um, just to shift that, then they put me into sheets and towels, and I did really well because people need sheets and towels. <laughs> suddenly, I'm suddenly the darling of the store again because, you know, of course I want to sell sheets and towels. But <laughs> so my dad listens to this woman, then he comes home to me and he says, If you're that intelligent, you should be able to keep them from knowing. That's what he said to me, which is just perfect. Like, what do you think you're doing? And I, you know, I just always, I was very grateful to be raised by someone who, who went right to it and saw exactly what was really happening there. You know, a lesser person would have thought, oh, well, you know, she is too intelligent for retail sales, meaning it's not mentally challenging enough. But no, no, he knew. And he, he just wouldn't let me get away with it. And I've, so it's, it's always stayed in my mind like that. Real he was, oh, yes, I thank God. My, my family was very fine. And my dad and I were particularly close. And what I got from him was this absolutely ramrod sense of morality period you know no 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 wiggle room on that okay let's go on okay let's see where we are okay uh, once he said to me those who are in tune i know their every thought the focus of his consciousness as is obvious from that statement was much broader than anything ordinary Many times he showed me this amazing breadth of awareness. Once he reproached me slightly for something I'd said. I had tried to convince a skeptic in ways that would only, unfortunately, have increased his skepticism. That was when he was telling an atheist about miracles. That was the story he would tell where he met the Beverly Hills psychiatrist and tried to convert him by talking about miracles. The master told me I should have shown more discrimination on that occasion. When I expressed surprise that he'd known about the episode, because Master had been far away and Swami hadn't told him, it'd just been a conversation Swami had with a person miles from the Master, Master replied, I know every thought you think. And that was when I said, Sir, does he still? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, of course he does. Finally, Swami says, I concluded that it was useless to try to understand Master. Laurie Pratt, who is Taramata, once remarked to me, whenever I think I've understood Master, I discover that he's beyond what I understood. Swami says, my own thought when she said that was, why even try to understand him? Meaning, how can you reach to that? I'd rather simply deepen my attunement with him. The Master's brother disciples, this is when Master was in Sri Yukteswar's ashram, used sometimes to complain that they couldn't understand their Guru Sri Yukteswar. You know, it was incomprehensible. What does he mean? Why is he behaving like this? He doesn't make any sense to me. Swami once said, you can't evaluate the behavior of a master, among many reasons, because you have a, often have no idea even what he's trying to accomplish. So you can sort of say he's behaving rightly or wrong. You don't even know what he's trying to do sometimes. I certainly saw that with Swamiji. Sometimes... I just didn't know what he was trying to do. Often he would tell me later, but he would often be working with someone in a certain way or understanding something that had to be accomplished or seeing an energy that had to be corrected that I just wasn't even perceiving. So I couldn't, there was no way to make a logical, he wasn't, Swami wasn't as a rule incomprehensible. You know, he tried hard to be rational and he tried hard to explain himself. But sometimes he was incomprehensible. You just really weren't quite sure what he was doing. But that was when he said, and speaking of Master also, you just don't always even know what he's trying to accomplish, so how do you know if he's doing it correctly? So he says, they couldn't understand Sri Yukteswar. I imagine Sri Yukteswar was quite bewildering. To them, the youthful Master replied, neither do you understand God. Like, don't be presumptuous. Swamiji says, my own job as a disciple, similarly, I realized was to absorb as much wisdom and inspiration from him as I was capable of holding. And that's all we needed to do. Now see, this also, it takes us back to something else, which is um, what makes us commit ourselves to a guru. Whether we, whether we met Master in person, whether we met Swamiji, whether we met Sri Yukteswar, or whether long after they're out of their body, something calls us to that commitment. You know, is it something that we can just lay out the pros and cons, or does it 
transcend anything that you can really think about. That was when I was talking to those people in Bangalore. It's like, you know, I saw Swami. I knew he could give me the only thing that I really wanted, which was freedom and happiness. And I needed to be where he was. I, was, I didn't reason it out. I didn't think what's going to become of me. I didn't think my duty here, my duty there, my education, my money, my aspirations, my desires. I mean, I, all of that was in me. But it just, it just didn't rise to the level of an issue. There was just one reality, which is I recognize, I recognize who he is to me and I need to act on that. And this, again, this is who we, who we really become inside. And this is why it serves us to constantly remind ourselves of what am I doing and why am I here? And a lot of times to, to silence our doubts by saying, yeah, that might be true, but I know what I'm doing and I know why I'm here. And to just constantly bring it back. Um, mass, in Master's Instructions for a Happy Marriage, one of the things that he says is, the couple should frequently reminisce about their, their, when they first met and their marriage and their honeymoon because they should frequently remind themselves of why they came together in the first place. It was, just, it was sort of an interesting um, emphasis. So as disciples in this divine romance, we should frequently reminisce about what it, what it felt like to, to find the path. In, in my particular position, I'm very fortunate because as part of my job, I get to frequently reminisce. <laughs> and the other thing I get to do as part of my everyday life is I get to meet people who've just discovered the spiritual path. And so they're always reminding me of this infinite chasm between before and after. Because, you know, after is a long story. Just like after the wedding, there's a lot of time. And a lot of things happen that make you forget about why you started. You, you lose priority. So it's very important to just always keep... Swami's parents, Ray and Gertrude Walters, they were married for 60 years. And Ray was very uh, humorous in his nature. And Swami said he never knew them to have even a disagreement. And I knew them well, and, and they were both very strong individuals. It was not because, it, it, was a, it was a beautiful relationship that they had. And so people would sometimes ask, because it was so even remarkable, even in their time. And Ray would say, well, he said, when I got married, I said to Gertrude, Gertrude, I'm going to make all the important decisions in our life together. And well, since we decided to get married, there just haven't been any important decisions to make. <laughs> but it was the truth, also. Okay, let's take a short break. Now, uh, Kamala Devi wants the microphone. So, I was thinking as you were talking about how you just suddenly discovered that that you had been so in tune with Swami that his thoughts could just be guiding you. Um, and it reminded me of something that someone said the other night in our Kriya Satsang group. Um, and this was a way that he practiced getting so in tune that he could, he could influence that flow to come through him. And... Um, it was, he was, I found it inspiring, so I wanted to share it, um, that he was in seclusion, so it was easy for him to experiment, and so he, um, he decided to ask Master everything. So, you know, I'm going to have tea. Should I have tea? What tea should I have right now? What should I use, a pencil or a pen to write in my journal? He started asking every single tiny question, all day long. Hmm. And by the third and fourth day, he said, he just suddenly was in this place where he knew exactly what to do. He, hmm. he observed himself to be in a greater flow um, that was coming from Master. And 
So I, I felt it was really inspiring because it's some, you know, action and awareness that we can apply to this situation and, and yeah, very, that's help very it good. along. That's a very good practice. Just keep the company of God. Master, will you, when Swami said to Master, when you are gone, will you be as close to us as you are now? Master said, to those who think me near, I will be near. And that's, so it's just, it's, the Master is an, a never-blinking, ever-lit beacon. And it, it, the Master never changes. We step in and out of that light. And we think that, that's, that the Master is shifting, but he's not shifting. Because he's, he's a, a single, eternal, infinite source. And that is always the same. That's where Master said, Jesus said to Anthony. Anthony says, when Jesus finally appeared, where, where were you, Lord? He says, Anthony, I was always the same with you. I was always here with you. It was that, you know, the devil came between us, but I didn't change. And that's sort of, it's, a, it's fascinating. That's a wonderful story. I love that. I absolutely love that. Yeah. Great. Okay. Anyone else comment? So, number 425. A spiritual disease worse than ignorance, the Master said, is indifference. So that's just what we're talking about. Worse than ignorance is indifference. If you just stop caring and just sort of start living like everybody else lives, why not? Why am I trying so hard? Why am I striving so hard for spiritual greatness? Let me just be like everyone else. They're not working so hard. Why should I be working so hard? Indifference. Spiritual disease worse even than ignorance is indifference. Linked to it is the habit of distracting the mind. This is number 425 is demanding. Linked to it is the habit of distracting the mind. As soon as you find yourself with a little leisure on your hands, you pick up a magazine or turn on the radio. (laughs) This is Master speaking to people. He's not necessarily speaking to his monks. He's speaking about people. Swamiji said, because Swami talked about himself, when, when Master speaks like that, he's not generalizing He's not dismissing that there are other people who aren't like that. He's stating the essential characteristic. And the essential characteristic is, as soon as you have a little leisure, you pick up a magazine or turn on the radio, which is, we just look for a way to fill the space. It's, it's an essential attitude, whether we literally do it or not. It's the impulse within us that says, I have a little space, let me distract my mind from whatever whatever we're trying to distract it from. Such things can be poison. (laughs) Well, there you have it. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Anything that relaxes your vigilance is a threat to your spiritual life. Oh, dear, I'm glad we have a lot of mitigating ones around this one. Aren't you? (laughs) You know, Master said... Um, and, and don't take this incorrectly, but Master said you only have to do 1% of what he taught, but everyone takes a different 1%. That's why he has to teach so much. And the other side of it is, is, is the art of the spiritual path is to be able to be realistic about your own self and not need to justify yourself and not need to change the teaching so that you look better in your own eyes. Yeah, because that's what we tend to do. I'm a quarter of the way up the mountain, so I'm going to call this the top of the mountain because I'm just, the mountain is too high for me, so I'm just going to call myself higher than I am. There was a whole spiritual movement in the 70s and 80s, maybe even to the 90s. It was just so popular. It was an absolute desecration of Sanatana Dharma. And one of my friends characterized it perfectly by saying, you know, what that so-called guru teaches is do whatever you like, just call it spiritual. And so it was immensely popular (laughs) because God is in me and this is what I feel to do. So obviously I'm being a spiritual person. It's just crazy. And it was crazy. And, you know, it just, Swami was quite never pleased. But Swami, as a rule, tried not to know anything about any other teacher so that when people asked, he just wouldn't have anything to say. 
But that particular one he spoke against. It was very rare for him to do it. Um, but Master says, you know, the inclination to distract your mind instead of lift your mind can become a habit. And it's going to be poison to your spiritual path. But what I was trying to say is we have to be realistic about what our potential is. We have to be realistic about what our breaking point is. Swami was asked in another context completely, Swami was asked, how much discipline is enough discipline? Because that's really what this question is. Do I ever get to turn on the radio or pick up a magazine, which is how now it's click onto the internet, whatever you do. Do I ever get to do that? Is it ever okay? Is it always poison? Do I always have to, you know, you can just see, you can make yourself crazy in a really fast period of time. So Swami was asked, how much discipline is enough? And he says, that which you can do joyfully. Now, but you have to understand, joy is not the same as ease and pleasure. Because some things are, are joyful not because they're easy or pleasurable, but they're joyful because of the satisfaction that you know what you're doing and you know why you're doing it. But even saying that, there's a point in which it's too much discipline because the joy of being a devotee is just lost. It's just become a tough, hard slug in which I never get a moment's peace. And, and in, in the Catholic Church, and they've been at this a lot longer than anyone else, so they've like figured out a bunch of stuff in the West. They actually have a word for it, and it's called overscrupulosity. It's where you know you're a religious in there, and you just become more and more paranoid about everything you're doing until you, you, make, you can sometimes literally make yourself insane. And th there was a period of time in my life, I don't remember clearly how I was behaving or what I was doing, but I do remember Swami speaking to me very sternly about it. And he said, his phrase was, God does not want you to be unhappy. He said, that's your imposition on it. And then he started saying, you know, you just keep saying, God doesn't want me to do this, God doesn't want me to do that, until you make the spiritual path so narrow that you can't stay on it. Because you have been so unrealistic about who you are that you will just either, sometimes people flip out, and I have seen it, people just have a mental breakdown because they've just suppressed and suppressed and, and disciplined and shamed so much that the, 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 the psyche rebels against it. And uh, so that's what he was saying with me. I, I just remember he was pleading with me to be more sensible. I, I have no idea what I was doing. I've never been one who fasted or walked barefoot in the snow or anything like that. So it must have been in my mind because I, I, I wouldn't have taken on physical austerities. It just wasn't my nature. But it must have been in my mind just becoming more and more anxious about not doing God's will. So when he says, how much discipline is enough, it's when, there's, when, you're, when it's a joyous flow, when you don't forget why you're doing it, and you don't think that being unhappy shows how spiritual I am. You know, it's, joy is the sign of God's presence. And if I'm just miserable, unless I really, you know, like a, I remember when a, a well-known uh, champion bicycle racer was talking about what his routine was. And he described this hours and hours of training every day. And then he said, it, he added, every day. My birthday, my wedding anniversary, my children's birthday, Christmas, New Year's. He said, every day. That's how I do it. And you know, that's why I win. Now, I'm sure there were lots of days when he wasn't having a lot of fun, but underneath it was the fact that he knew he was going to win if he did it. So that's where the joy comes from, is that I know what I'm doing, I know where I'm going. And it's, a, it's, worth, it's worth my doing. It's satisfying to me to know that I'm really on track. And so we have to balance it. And then on the other hand is, anything that relaxes your vigilance is a threat to your spiritual life, constant vigilance. But we also have to realize this is a matter of attitude, not just action, you know. And anything that causes God to become a tyrant and to or lose track of how we're loved, that's, a much, that's really relaxing your vigilance, much more than whether you eat the extra pint of ice cream or whatever it might be, sleep in the extra 30 minutes. A friend of mine, God bless her, Every, every night she'd set her alarm clock for 4.30 and every 4.30 a.m. she'd reset it for 6. 
But every night she'd set it again for 4.30, just because someday she was going to get it together and do it. But she had a wonderful, just like, someday I'll do it. She would just affirm every time that she was going to do it, and then every time she wouldn't. And I don't know if to this day what time she gets up. <laughs> I always loved that. All right. I, this is a big one. Let's see if we get through it. Four, 426. Any comments before we go on? Okay, number 426. During the time of testing that preceded the Master's departure from his body, Swami refers to this in other places, Master knew that he was leaving and that he had to leave a, a unified group behind him that could work together and that some people, he could hold them, Master could hold them, but he knew without his presence there they wouldn't be able to be strong enough. So he, you know, it sort of, when he, when he let them go, it wasn't that he was really letting them go, he was just making the a proper arrangements for when he died. Jesus did it too. It's a common thing. Um, master's departure from his body, a number of the monks left their monastic calling. The master counseled the rest of us, whenever you see someone leave, tell yourself inwardly, men may come and men may go, but I go on forever. The mere fact that other people leave doesn't have to have anything to do with you. It's just their choice. You know, devotees may come, devotees may go, but I will be thine always. That's just such a beautiful chant. My master, this is um, Paramahansa Yogananda saying, my master, Sri Yukteswar, used to say, Sangha's boat is calling. Who will go, who will go? If no one else goes, I at least will go. And this is, again, why am I on the spiritual path? Is it because everybody else is doing it, or is it because I know? I just know what I'm doing. And in, in, uh, often at the end of a master's life, the master makes it harder because the disciples are going to have to rely more on their own intuition after he's gone. He's not going to be there to, to explain it all to them and, and smooth the way for them. So he, he, he pushes them. That's what Jesus, eat my body and drink my blood. He was really challenging his disciples to commit themselves to their intuitive perception rather than their rational support for it. And Swami says, I feared for my own spiritual safety. The path sometimes seemed to me almost like a game of musical chairs in which the question of who gets to sit down when the music stops is a matter of pure luck. The master, aware of my fear, consoled me. As long as you make the effort, God will never let you down. Swamiji spoke of karmically having an inclination to doubt. You know, this is, I, I, I hear what Swami's saying about this, but I personally... I've, I've had this other experience with this. Now, let me just try to be fair to this. Um, you, over the course of my life with Ananda, which is now since 1971, you know, there's just hundreds of people have come and gone through the years. Ananda as an entity is remarkably stable in this respect. I mean, even well, I, globally now I can't follow it, but when we were still in the world of Ananda, which is the American world, which I know well, it was, it was like there were always concentric circles, and there still are, just concentric circles of people who, of, of differing levels of not just commitment, but total um, absorption and self-identification with Ananda. This was more obvious when we lived at the village where it was a big shift to move, but it's still true. It's like people can even take Kriya or take discipleship, but there's just this sort of moving toward the center. And during Swami's lifetime, it was more vivid. That once people actually got all the way into the story, and it wouldn't necessarily, well, it would show, but um, it wasn't like it was formal. It's just like it, was a, it has been a very stable group. Just, you know, there's the number of people who have been part of Ananda for decades, fully committed for decades, it's actually a very large group. 
And it, at different times, when we were in the middle of litigation in, during the 90s, for some reason, as part of what we had to produce for the other lawyers, we had to make a list essentially of everybody who'd ever been a member of Ananda, not anyone who'd ever stepped on the property, but everybody who'd ever been there. I don't know why. They were just tormenting us with things that would cost us money and take us time. Um, but it was very interesting because I came in in 1971. The community started a couple of years before me. My actual membership number of people 20 years later who are still there is 15. So I was by no means the 15th person to arrive, but I was the 15th person who was still there after 20 years. <laughs> but when I read through all these names, almost all of whom I knew well, it wasn't merely that I knew their names, just a few who preceded me, but almost all of them I knew and I knew well, with one exception, I wasn't surprised that they left. Because, and the way I would put it to myself, they were always playing an edge. There was always an edge of some attitude, some cynicism, some bad quality, that they were always indulging. Now, I didn't say expressing because God knows I have a lot of attitudes that I've expressed that are not good. But I didn't indulge them. They would take me over, if you know what I mean. And I would always know they were wrong. But there were other people who just enjoyed playing that. And it's not that everyone who, who did that left because some of them got through it. But virtually everyone who left had been doing that and didn't stop. So for what that meant to me is, it's not that mysterious. You know, if you, just what he says here, you don't have to worry like that. As long as you make the effort, God will never let you down. And the most fundamental effort you have to make on the spiritual path is humility and self-honesty. And humility is self-honesty. You can be as terrible as you are as long as you just don't try to make yourself something that you're not. And just, of course, Master, that's why I'm here. You know, if I had my life together, I'd be an avatar. <laughs> that's the whole point. The whole point is it's not working and I have endless things to overcome. That's why I need your help. And even though I may have this temper or this cynicism or this fear or this indulgence, um, I want to overcome it. Or even, and this is also more honest, I want to want to overcome it. <laughs> I know that this is not helping me. And I want to want to overcome it. That's, I mean, those are, they're, those are real stages. But even that, you see, you're making the effort. And as long as you make the effort, God will never let you down because he loves you. He wants you to win. And so that's, we just have to keep looking to the purity of our hearts and the sincerity of our intention. All right. Will that do us for tonight? Okay. Very good. So we read, we read 424 through 426.